our study on biblical apologetics, we left off, there it is, we left off with kind of a, uh, uh, a summary of different materials that were used to write the Bible, the original uh, manuscripts, uh, some of the ways that they, uh, they kept records in those times. <clears throat> First Peter 3.15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's kind of going to be our scripture text for the uh, series. That was a hard one. <clears throat> so the, the scriptures are exhorting us to have a ready answer. First, we need to uh, sanctify God as Lord in our hearts. We need to understand who he is. And then we need to have a ready answer for the hope that is in us. The reason why we believe what we do. And so, uh, we kind of laid out our objectives for this series. One, to settle any doubts in our hearts as to what we believe to be true. Two, learn to identify where people are starting from so that we can lead them from where they are to where God wants them to be. And three, to build our faith that God can use us to give an answer to the questions that people will have about your faith, your worldview, your beliefs. We talked about the cultural changes in the U.S. over the past 50 years or so and how we as the church need to adopt different methods, uh, if I can say it so crass, of reaching them. Now, obviously, our methods change. And also, obviously, our doctrine does not. Our message remains the same. But in different cultures... We need to have different methods. And what worked here 50, 75 years ago isn't necessarily going to work so well today. Fortunately or unfortunately. We talked about the two things people need to acknowledge before salvation is possible. They need to acknowledge God as creator of everything. And that they create, God created everything out of nothing. He owns it. They also need to acknowledge the foundational and absolute authority of God's word. Once they have those two things nailed down, God can do pretty much anything he wants with them. We define some terms. Presuppositions, things or ideas we presuppose to be true. Worldviews, the lenses through which we see the world. We'll stick with purple. Apologetics, the defense of the Christian worldview against alternatives and against criticisms. And then, as we, as I said, we ended with uh, writing materials and methods, uh, and we're going to continue on with that tonight. Now, again, a reminder, this is not a college course. There are entire uh, master's degrees you can get in extant manuscripts and original manuscripts and languages and all of that stuff. Uh, this is most certainly not that. I am far from qualified to be teaching a class like that. However, what we can do is settle in our hearts once and for all that what we have in front of us today is what the apostles had 2,000 years ago. What Moses received from Mount Sinai with the finger of God is what we have in front of us today. 
Now allow me to say this. If it's not, we can follow that through to its logical conclusion as well. If what we have is not the Word of God, then we are without hope. We are wasting our time here. I love seeing all you guys. I enjoy your company, but we're wasting our time. I don't need to be doing this, and you guys got probably better places to be. If this is not true. If it is true, if this is the very word of God, if this is what was received originally, then we need to abide by it, all of it. Hopefully by the end of our lesson tonight, we will have that settled in our hearts. Is this or is this not the actual word of God? Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this. Excuse me? Let's go to canon first, since I have that first on the notes. We talk about canon. This is canon. Old Testament, New Testament, canon. What does that mean? It comes from a Hebrew-Greek word meaning cane or measuring rod. It passed into Christian usage to mean norm or rule of faith. The church fathers of the 4th century, we'll look more into that, first employed it in reference to the definitive authoritative nature of the body of sacred scripture. It's a settled, demonstrated, uh, actual set of writings that proves to be the very word of God. Anything that is not canon was not included in our book that we call the Bible. There are a lot of writings. We'll talk a little bit about the Apocrypha uh, later on. There are other things that uh, some people maybe would like to include, but we rejected them for one reason or another, and we'll go through those. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, you will hear this if you talk to enough people, and it won't take you too long to find the person that will say this. The Bible cannot possibly be true. I'll have all kinds of reasons, but one of those is this. Some of these writings are 4,000 years old, 3,500 years old. How is it possible that it survived 3,500 years to the present day in its original form? How is that possible? Now, when I say original form, please understand that there are issues with languages, okay? For example, a really easy example, Greek has several words for love, don't, doesn't it? Agape, eros, uh, filio. I think there's another one in there. Um, anyway, we have one, love, and it means all of those. I love God. I love hamburgers. They don't mean the same thing. I can live without hamburgers. I just choose not to. <laughs> but I can't live without God. 
I love God a whole lot more than I love my hamburger. So uh, those kinds of language, lingual issues will come up in translation, okay? Uh, we take the best word we can, but the meaning, the meaning of the original text remains the same. We'll demonstrate that here in a moment. But this, it just can't be. It just doesn't make sense. The 3,500 years, we got the same words. We got the same uh, message, the same meaning. How many people translated this thing? How many people wrote this from, from original to copy, from old copy to new copy, all the way down through the ages until Gutenberg's printing press? Lots of room for error, right? It just makes sense that there's some errors in there. Well, just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true. It just doesn't. That's not proof of falsehood. That's not proof of error. That's you wishing. That's you hoping, believing. You have faith in that. I have faith in this. There's no difference. So you're going to have to do a little bit better than that, sir, ma'am, if you want to demonstrate to me that there are errors in here. You'll hear that. In this, uh, this passage of Scripture, the apostles declare that man wrote the words down, but the author was God. Okay, God didn't grab a pen and start writing. He used people. He still uses people to accomplish his will. But the words that came out of that pen were God's, not the writer's. So we have Peter here speaking with apostolic authority and under the unction of the Holy Ghost, declaring that God was the author, not man. Are we going to take him at his word? Well, that depends, doesn't it? What do I believe about Scripture? Christ's witness to the Old Testament canon. Luke 24 and 44 says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Now he said it that way because Jesus here is referring to the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible is divided up into three distinct divisions. The Torah, also called the Law or the Pentateuch, <clears throat> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im or the Prophets, Further divided, divided into the former prophets, the latter prophets, and the twelve. Former prophets being Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no first, second Samuel, or first, second Kings, or first, second Chronicles. Uh, they just lump it all into one. Latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the twelve, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, uh, all the ones that we would consider minor prophets. Those are the twelve. The Ketuvim writings, the third uh, division of the Hebrew Bible, is further divided into religious poetry and wisdom literature, including Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. The five Megillot, question mark, question mark, or five scrolls, Song of Solomon's Ruth, I'm sorry, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, and the book of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Genesis being the first book of the Bible, Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible being the last book of the Bible. 
Jesus refers to the writings as the Psalms probably because Psalms is the first and longest book in this third division. Okay. Luke chapter 11 verse 51 says this, From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which pierced between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Now again, Jesus is confirming his witness to the extent of the Old Testament canon. Genesis, the blood of Abel, Zechariah, in Second Chronicles chapter 24. So from Genesis to Chronicles, the whole Old Testament scripture, all that they had, it was verifying that that was, that was indeed the word of God. Jesus is saying the entire Old Testament is understood by the Jews of his day, carries with it, God's authority. Okay. What about the Apocrypha? Who has heard of the Apocrypha? Read any of it? Some of it's all right. It's, it's pretty good. It's, there's some history there. It's, it's okay, but it's not Scripture. There are a lot of good books out there, but they're not Scripture. One guy even told me that the, uh, the notes in my study Bible were not Scripture either. They were not inspired. I was very disappointed by that. <clears throat> but it's true. <laughs> They're not. Apocrypha comes from the Greek word apocryphus, apocryphus, meaning hidden or concealed. These books being generally recognized as 1st, 2nd Edris, Tobit, Judith, Rest of Esther, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch and the Epistle of Jeremy, the Song of the Three Children, Story of Susanna, the Idol Bell and the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, First and Second Maccabees. Now, some of these are included in some, not in others. In our Bible, we have none of them. Uh, why is that? Well, they abound in historical and geographical inaccuracies and anachronisms. Uh, they're, they're simply errors in these writings. They teach doctrines which are false and foster practices which are at variance with inspired scripture. For example, and I've included this in your notes, the book of Tobit includes a statement that almsgiving atones for sin. Where have we heard that described as canon? If you look at church history, you'll see that being practiced a lot. They resort to literary types and display an artificiality of subject matter and styling out of keeping with inspired scripture. In other words, the, the, the style of writing uh, was not congruent with inspired scripture. And so they, they felt like... Now, I should say that any one of these is probably not a good reason to throw something out, but all of them together is a really good reason. Jesus never quotes from any of these. The apostles never quote from them. The early church fathers never quote from them. They are unloved and unnoticed. <laughs> okay. So that's why we don't include them. New Testament canon. Tests for including a book in, in ha New Testament. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The basic factor for determining New Testament canonicity was inspired by God and its chief test, apostolicity. In other words, did it have the approval of the apostles or not? 
were they recognized by the apostles as the word of God. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Acts 2 and 4 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The term apostolic, as used for the test of canonicity, does not necessarily mean authorship. Again, it, it simply means, uh, or could mean, uh, was prepared under the direction of the apostles or has their approval as being canonical. Now, when we talk about apostolic authority, and this is a whole other message, uh, we have to understand that all authority is derived. All authority comes ultimately from God. He is the only one with inherent authority in all of creation. All authority comes ultimately from God. Everybody else who has any kind of authority wields it by uh, derivation or because it was delegated to him by God. So when we speak of apostolic authority, uh, that remains the same. They don't have authority in and of themselves. Their authority comes from God. So when they do this, when they speak with authority, when they write with authority, they are speaking with God's delegated authority. Okay? So that means that if the apostles operating in the office of the apostle under the unction of the Holy Ghost declares these things to be true and valid, we have to accept that as coming from God. They're not God. We're not talking about popple stuff here, okay? <clears throat> but as God's representative here, we have to understand that the Lord is putting his stamp of approval on these books through the apostles. Okay. Probably could have said that better, but... Who recognized the New Testament as canon? The writings, now these are getting into some of the church fathers from uh, A.D. 100 to A.D. 400-ish. The writings of Arrhenius, A.D. 180, attest to the canonicity of just about every New Testament book we have today. He recognizes the fourfold Gospels, the book of Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, First Peter, First John, and Revelation. Almost all of them, but not quite. His writings indicate that the fourfold gospel was so universally accepted as to be recognized as an established fact. Okay. Polycarp, AD 115. Clement and the others referred to the Old and New Testament books with this phrase, as it is said in these scriptures. Athanasius of Alexandria, AD 367, gives us the earliest list of New Testament books, which is exactly like our present New Testament. Shortly after Athanasius, two writers, Jerome and Augustine, define the canon of 27 New Testament books, and the Synod of Hippo in AD 393 lists officially the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. Now, in this, they only recorded their previously established canonicity, okay, the authority that they recognized as already possessing. <clears throat> Once we got to this point, uh, they weren't really determining what was canon and what was not. They were simply recognizing 
what already was considered canon and putting it into uh, an official uh, meeting. Four years later, at the Third Synod of Carthage, this ruling was reestablished. Okay, so that's how canonicity historically has been determined, using these criteria. If one disagrees with that, maybe there's a better way to do it. And maybe somebody could tell me that. However, this is what we have. This is what the apostles used. This is what the church fathers used. I believe this is what God used through these people to establish truth. We're going to see in a little bit exactly why that was necessary. All right, the manuscripts. This is where it gets fun. Another term, autograph. That's not your John Hancock. That is an original manuscript. That is what Paul wrote in prison to the Philippians. The paper that that was on is an autograph, the original manuscript. And from the original manuscripts, we have copies. From those copies, we have other copies. The original manuscripts, as far as I could find, we don't have any more. There are no original manuscripts left. That's a problem, right? Not literarily. I think I said that right. I didn't need to say literally. Literary. Okay, so the autographs are the original manuscripts that Scripture was written on. The cities receiving the actual autographs were in the region of Asia Minor or Syria today. Greece and Rome, the area of activity of the apostles and the early church. That's where all of the original autographs were at first. And that's where they stayed, primarily in that area. Okay, the Bible itself attests to the proliferation of God's word. Acts chapter 6 and 7 says, And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts 12 and 24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 13 49 says, And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Acts 19, I guess I didn't include that in the notes. Acts 19 and 20 says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So the word of God from these original manuscripts were copied and published and sent out to other churches, other groups. They were copied and sent out to other groups, to other churches, and the Word of God multiplied, and it was published throughout all the region. <clears throat> okay, Wilbur Pickering, a uh, master of theology in Greek exegesis from Dallas Theological Seminary, and an MA and PhD in linguistics from the University of Toronto. This guy has nothing better to do. Okay, well, at least he knows what he's talking about here. He says this, and this is a direct quote. <laughs> it's not mine. We may reasonably assume that in the earliest period of the transmission of the text, the most reliable copies of the autographs would be circulating in the region that held the autographs. With an ever-increasing demand and consequent pol- 
proliferation of copies throughout the Greco-Roman world and with the potential for verifying copies by having recourse to the centers still possessing the autographs, the early textual situation was highly favorable to the wide dissemination of manuscripts in close agreement with the original text. It follows that within a relatively few years after the writing of the New Testament books, there came rapidly into existence a, quote, majority text whose form was essentially that of the autographs. The science of statistical probability demonstrates that a text form in such circumstances could scarcely be dislodged from its dominant position. In every age from the apostolic to the 19th century, the text form in question was the one that the church in general recognized, used, and transmitted. Unquote. So in other words, uh, the... Uh, the climate of the of the area, as far as uh, the transmission of these texts were concerned, was very, very good. All of the originals were right in the area. So if someone received a copy of a copy, all I got to do is go back to the original and check it out. It's still here. So by the time these copies were well used, they were still good because they were checked against the originals. And uh, he also makes a point that the dissemination of this particular, uh, and I say this particular because there were other uh, translations that we'll talk about here momentarily, but this majority text, uh, which came from these original uh, manuscripts, <coughs> were the ones preferred by the church and the ones used all over the place. Scholars agree unanimously on the overwhelming dominance of this New Testament majority text in the early church and throughout history. Today, the majority text is also called the Syrian text, the Byzantine text, and the K or Kappa or Common text. Uh, this text is, is the one used in the King James Version or Authorized Version. <clears throat> okay, so what about other, other translations? There is this 1% minority, and how this came about is that uh, when people started finding or, or looking for and finding these old, the oldest manuscripts we could find, obviously we're looking for originals. I don't believe from what I've found anyone has ever actually found any intact. Uh, but the, the oldest copies that we have found differ from this majority text. We have found copies older. And the, as the thinking goes, well, if they're older, they're probably closer to the originals. That makes sense, right? <clears throat> but see, what's going on here is these older ones, they were never used because they were not correct copies. In fact, some of them were really not correct copies. And so uh, they were never used. So they stayed intact longer. The ones that were Good copies were used. And like any old preacher knows, his old Bible, it just see, it's seen better days when it's been used for 20 years. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, in the New Testament. And so, uh, as it goes, these Old Testament, or these, uh, these older manuscripts, now we want to use these because they're older and closer to the, the originals. And 
These older manuscripts, there's four of them primarily, uh, and they disagree with the other 99% uh, or the majority text. These include the Vaticanus, labeled as B, uh, the Sinaiticus, that word there, uh, behind Aleph, Beze, or D, and Papyrus 75. Dean John Burgeon, the scholar who has collated the most early New Testament witnesses, 87,000 of them, writes concerning the, the four uh, manuscripts, Aleph, B, C, and D. He says this about them. All four are discovered on careful scrutiny to differ essentially, not only from the 99 out of 100 of the whole body of extant manuscripts, but even from each other. And so that's, that's really not what we're looking for. We're looking for something a little bit more accurate. Pickering speaks of these manuscripts. The dis- the dis- excuse me, please. The distressing realization is forced upon us that the progress of the past hundred years has been precisely in the wrong direction. Our modern versions and critical texts are found to differ from the original in some 6,000 places, many of them being serious differences. They are several times farther removed from the originals than are the AV and the TR, King James Version and its foundation, the Greek Texas Receptus. How could such a calamity have come upon us? Much of the work that has been done is flawed. Zane Hodges, uh, professor of New Testament literature and exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary, co-editor of a Greek New Testament, refers to the new versions as, quote, monstrously unscientific, if not dangerously obscurantist. The average well-taught Bible-believing Christian has often heard the King James Version corrected on the basis of, quote, better manuscripts or, quote, older authorities. Lacking any kind of technical training in this area, the average believer probably has accepted such explanations from individuals he regards as qualified to give them. But they are not. They are not good translations. They are not good manuscripts to get a translation from. And Westcott and Hort has a, uh, has a Greek New Testament. They have a, a dictionary, uh, that's based off of these older, ma- these older manuscripts. And so, uh, there are, let me say this about, uh, some of the other translations. I don't use them except to, uh, maybe every once in a while get clarification. Uh, if I don't understand a cultural context or something like that, I'll use it to see what other translations say. Uh, I'm not preaching from it. I, I don't, stu- I don't study from them. I think you can get saved from them. If you got an NIV. I think you can get saved from that. Uh, I would put a KJV in your hand as soon as possible. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's my stance. That's, that's, that's how I feel about it. Uh, there are, if you, if you do verse by verse comparisons of the, the King James and some of the other ones, there are, uh, differences. And <laughs> I think they've corrected some of them in the NIV, but they actually used to literally remove verses from that translation. They were, they would go from John chapter three, verse five to seven, for example. I don't think that was an actual one, but verse six was not there. I'm like, well, that can't be good. 
that that was put in for a reason. So I would highly recommend that you st- you do your studying from the the King James version. Um I'll just leave it at that. It's the superior translation. The words that they used, uh, one, one example comes to mind, uh, in, in, instead of translating it love, the King James Version translates it charity. And a study was done on that, actually, and I, I don't have the study in front of me. I can't quote anything. Uh, if you really want me to, I, I know where it is. I can get it and I'll show it to you. But, um, the study was how people, they would read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 from a the NIV version, you know, different translations, and then the KJV. And all of these ones that translated love, the vast majority of them, and I can't remember the number, I think it was like 65%. Anyway, the majority of them, the vast majority of them, when they saw that word, their first reaction was sexual. That was their first reaction. I don't know if these were born-again Christians or or who they were. But when they saw the word charity, they saw a selfless kind of love. And so, I mean, that is that is what we're what First Corinthians 13 is trying to, to portray is that kind of love. And again, it's it's when you're translating from one language to another, you're going to have these problems. Love is a, it's an accurate translation, but there was a better word to use in light of what the scriptures were trying to portray. And the KJV does that. Now, <laughs> I understand 1611 English, right? Not the easiest stuff to, to wade through sometimes. I get that. <clears throat> In our culture today, I think I got a little bit of time. In our culture today, there is this idea that we want to just dumb everything down. We want to make everything as easy as possible. And you're going to jump to conclusions here, but just bear with me for a moment. You want to dumb everything down, make it easy, make it, uh, and, uh, in our, I fear that 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 attitude, a casual attitude, um, you know, casual toward. <clears throat> when I was growing up, and I talked to an adult, it was Mister and Mister So and So, last name. If I called anybody by their first name, I got spanked. And I mean, it, it was it was the real deal. I got hit. In fact, that was, I got hit all the way to right now. <laughs> it was, it was funnier in my head. Anyway, uh, I got disciplined. I got disciplined. Mr., Mrs., last name. You don't talk to a, an adult like you're their buddy. You don't talk to them like you're their, you're their chum. You're going to hang out and go bowling with them. 
You're not their peer. They are your superior. They are your elder. You respect them. Mr. Last Name. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And today, we don't have that much anymore. We got Pastor Jim. We got parents. Oh, no, no, just, just call me, call me Joe. And I fear, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'll, I'll bring it back. I fear that that will creep into the church if it hasn't already, and that will affect our approach with God. That will affect when we're approaching the presence of God, the throne room of God. That's a serious thing. That's a weighty, heavy thing. And I know we have invitation, and I'm thankful for that, and he wants us to come in. That's all true. But at the same time, in the Old Testament, if my dad was the king, I don't care if I'm the crown prince. I'm going to approach him like he's the king. I know he loves me, and we have a, we have a special relationship. But I'm going to reverence that man because he's my father and he's my king. And so this, this casual laissez-faire attitude that it exists in this world today, I don't like it. I know it, I know it's comfortable and I know it's, it's nice, but I don't like it. I think we're missing a lot of things. I think we lose a lot of things by doing that. And bringing it back to the King James Version, the 1611 English, I get it. Nobody uses that anymore. It's a little bit hard to understand sometimes. The these and the thous and, and the, the cultural uh, references that are made. I mean, it, you got to look those things up. I tell you what's really cool is if you get a, and they publish these, you get a 1611 King James English dictionary. You get a dictionary that was published in 1611. They sell them. You can get them. And the first thing I realized is that a lot of the words that, well, that, that was probably better translated as this. Maybe today, but not in 1611. In 1611, that was a great translation. It's just that the meaning changed. The man with gay apparel. What does that mean? Well, in 1611, that meant something way different than it does today. So, uh, languages change over time. Get the dictionary, look up the words. It's a beautiful thing. In 16, and I believe, this is just me. Just me. I believe that the Lord gave us this particular translation in 1611 because that was the height of the English language. That was the peak of our language. And what better time to present the Word of God? And, and what better uh, form to have it appear in than the height of our language? Well, it is, I love the King James. I have, I have no problem with people looking at other Bibles. I don't fear other Bibles. They don't make me scared. 
uh, I just, I think they're inferior. And I want, I want the superior. I want the Word of God. And to the extent of my ability, a long time ago, I followed this process that, that we're going to be walking through for myself. I wanted to make absolutely sure that what I had was, was the Word of God. I wanted to make absolutely sure that, I mean, I was wrong before. Couldn't I be wrong again? I wasn't so arrogant as to believe that, that now I had a, I had a corner on truth. <clears throat> and so I, I looked at everything to the best of my ability with the resources I had at the time. And my, my questions were answered. God answered all of my questions. If you have questions, first of all, don't beat yourself up about it. Just get them answered. Those questions are a blessing, and here's why. Somebody else has that exact same question. I promise you that. I've already discovered that. If you have questions about the Word of God, your relationship with God, uh, why do bad things happen to good people, um, word, you know, anything, if you're, if you're confused or in doubt about these things, get them answered. Because now you have the answer. Now you have a ready answer to give someone that's asking you a reason for the hope that is in you. We've got to have that answer, and we've got to have it ready. <clears throat> what we have, and I apologize, the, the, the forum that we're presenting this in is at best 50 minutes. I don't have time to present a lot of information, uh, but I encourage you to uh, dig further into these things. See if what I'm saying is true. And if you find something that I said wrong, let me know. Please, please let me know. <clears throat> and we can talk about it. And I'll be right, and we can have a great relationship. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> but do the research. Please do the research. Um, not everybody is like that. Not everybody likes research. Not everybody likes to go down deep and stay down long and come up dry. I do. So this was, this was fun for me. But do it, dig down enough to make sure. If this hasn't convinced you, and it may not have, like I said, we got not long here. Do the research. Figure it out for yourself. Allow God to work you through the process and make absolutely sure. I promise you, if you do the research with an open mind, God will tell you, God will show you that this is true. I promise you that. But don't take my word for it. Do it. If you need to try to prove me wrong, do that. Do it, and you will see for yourself. It's not always a good thing, especially 
in areas of foundational, foundational areas. <clears throat> it's not always good to just accept what's preached uncritically. Now, I gotta be careful here. <laughs> what I mean is this. I have seen people that come into the church and they just accept everything. No questions. And they're gone in a month. Because they found something else that they didn't question and accepted uncritically. I would rather have a, a person that's really hard and asks the tough questions and fights against this a little bit. There's a happy medium in there that I would prefer. But if I have to go the two extremes, I'd rather have the hard guy. Because once he gets everything nailed down, he's going to stick. He's going to stay. And he's going to do something for God. Because they've got it settled in their hearts. We have got to get the word of God settled in our hearts. There will come a day. There will come a day where you will begin to doubt something that you've held dear for so long. And in that day, you're going to be glad that you put the work in now. When it was daytime, don't wait until you're depressed and in despair and feeling all alone. Don't wait until then. Do it now. Become rock solid in your belief that this is the word of God, that this is the foundational truth of all reality. Everything else is built on it. Get that figured out. Get it worked out in your spirit. Because after that, once you've got that, and by the grace of God, church, <laughs> I've got it. I have got this nailed down. You are not going to dislodge me from this. Not this. There are other things I'm still trying to nail down. But the word of God, I trust it with everything in me. Amen. In, in conclusion, Dead Sea Scrolls. Discovered in February slash March of 1947 by a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad, that's kind of ironic, who was searching for his lost goat. He tossed a stone into a hole in a cliff on the west side of the Dead Sea, about eight miles south of Jericho. He heard the sound of shattering pottery. Investigating, he discovered an amazing sight. On the floor of the cave were several large jars containing leather scrolls wrapped in linen cloth. Because the jars were carefully sealed, the scrolls had been preserved in excellent condition for nearly 1,900 years. They were evidently placed there in 68 A.D., two years before the fall of Jerusalem. One scroll found was a complete manuscript of the Hebrew text of Isaiah. Dates to around 125 B.C., more than 1,000 years older than any manuscript previously discovered. More than 1,000 years older. What did we find on this? Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there is only one word, three letters, in question after 1,000 years of transmission, and this word does not significantly change the meaning of the passage. In other words, 
What we have today matches mathematically exactly with what this over a thousand years ago. So what that means, church, is there was no drunk monk in some monastery somewhere just scribbling whatever came to mind. This is the very word of God. It is. I say that with as much authority as I can muster. This is the word of God. And we need to adhere to it. We need to base our lives on it. There's two choices. We do or we don't. We believe it or we don't. If we're going to believe it, like they would say in the army, man up and do all of it. Be honest with it. Do all of it. Because it's all true. It's all true or it's not. If there is one thing wrong in this book, it's all wrong. Because now it's not the word of God. Not the word of this God. But if it's all true, we need to do all of it. There is a blessing that comes onto a person's life when they submit themselves to the authority of Scripture and begin to obey what God commands us to do. God is looking for someone like that so he can pour his blessings out, so his hand can be upon that person. God can do amazing things through that person. But if we're full of self-will, if we're judging the Word of God based on some higher criteria, then God's got a lot to work out in me. I'm not going to be very effective, and I'm going to be frustrated, and I'm going to be discouraged. Nail it down. Be absolutely sure. There are other things we're going to need to be absolutely sure about. Tonight, this is it. That this is the very word of God.